Hello, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. This podcast is designed to show high-level issues through conversation, debate, and to find the middle ground between competing arguments. We hope that today you are able to take away some new perspectives and some new ideas that can help whenever you look at these issues. This is a podcast brought to you by Sacramento State students and produced in collaboration with KSSU Radio. We thank you for your time, and we really hope that you enjoy this podcast. We've had a really rough couple of years so far. We've seen a lot of divisiveness, a lot of angst, and a lot of hatred. And what really came to my attention was the fact that it seemed as if no one really wanted to have a conversation to try and find a compromise. And so today, we try to find that compromise with either opposing viewpoints, with the challenges that we currently face in society. And we want to show you that you can have a conversation and find some middle ground and find a bit of common footing within two arguments. Our topic today is policing and education. We have Dr. Ernest Uwazi, who is the professor and chair for the Division of Criminal Justice at Sacramento State. And he is also the director for the Center of African Peace and Resolution at Sacramento State as well. Dr. Uwazi, I wanna thank you first for being on. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you so much. And I also want to bring on our next guest, who is Dr. Torrance Powell. He is an urban planner, educator, and a South Sacramento native. Dr. Powell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. So before we get started, um, for the audience, we want to explain this a little bit. We're going to do a a bit of a moderated debate. Each panelist has been given questions in advance. We've talked through them about answers and how you might answer some of them. Also hearing all experiences and opinions. We want to make sure that everyone understands that everyone has their own perspective on each issue, and we ask that you respect that perspective, regardless of if you agree, disagree, or don't understand it. So let's go ahead and get started with this episode. It's going to be awesome, everyone. So our first question I'm going to ask to Dr. Ernest Duwazi. Dr. Duwazi, what accountability is there for police officers, and how is it enforced? Generally speaking, there are both internal and external mechanisms for our accounting of our accountability with regard to police behavior or misconduct. Uh, in pretty much any police department in the country, and definitely in California, by law, is a requirement that you need to have that. Many departments have multiple measures, both internal and external. It definitely internal mechanism is present in pretty much any law enforcement agency, um, typically referred to as the internal affairs uh, division. Uh, That is an internal mechanism within the police department to handle generally complaints uh, between the public or citizen and the police department. And the police department could include uh, the police officer, or police policies and and procedures. It also can be used to handle employee disputes uh, or conflicts uh, that are civil in nature or personal matters, you know, to a large extent. So that's internal. Uh, There are different types of external mechanisms. Um, In large metropolitan police departments, you may have what generalists refer to as civilian complaint review board. The powers and authority and jurisdiction of such a board may vary from place to place. 
from making recommendation. It could be as much as you know, as making making recommendation for discipline, or in some instances, that board may be charged with actual you know dismissal or going beyond uh, taking direct action uh, against the police you know uh, police officer or with regard to police policy and, and procedures. Uh, you do have some other variations, uh, Office of Inspector General, the Monitor, uh, Civilian Complaint uh, you know, Commission. Um, some may be just investigation, some may be more of advocacy, some may be somewhat of uh, community-based oversight. Sacramento does have uh, somewhat of a quasi or a semi-independent uh, external internal mechanism referred to as the Office of Public Safety Accountability. Um, it's not within the police department, neither is it in the community. Actually, it resides within the city manager's office. And it monitors what police officers, uh, how they you know, handle citizen complaints. In some instances, they may be part of the investigation, especially in serious shooting cases, and can make recommendations, including where they may disagree. The director could disagree uh, with the conclusions of the internal affairs division and will report that to the city manager and the city council uh, for whatever action, including policy reviews or, or changes. And of course, currently we do have in the past few years the, uh, the uh, Police Community Review Commission uh, that is intended to provide a little bit more power of oversight um, in an external, external mechanism. So again, there are both internal and external mechanisms. Uh, I know I have not talked about the power of the district attorney in cases of criminal investigation and possible prosecution as the case may be. And again, the effectiveness of any of these mechanisms may vary from place to place, but that will be probably another debate some, some other time or later on in this discussion. Thank you very much. So to follow up with you a little bit, um, do you feel that we should enact a new form of accountability for police officers? I mean, I don't know what I mean by it. I, I'm not sure how totally new. Um, uh, it's possible, uh, given the moment, the, the environment we are in, the George Floyd moment we are in. I, I don't want to rule that out, but I also, as a scholar myself, I, I don't believe in piling on and piling on without taking stock of what you have done already. In Sacramento uh, City, for example, uh, I used to be on the uh, police, uh, you know, community relations uh, commission. Um, uh, there were definitely, uh, and I, I did, you know, head one of the subcommittees on issues of diversity and inclusion. And we made some recommendations. I know the former city council member, Larry Carr, also made some headway in terms of his own leadership with regard to, you know, forced de-escalation. Um, and we, we have seen uh, many proposals over the years, um, even you know, before the George Floyd moment, uh, including the founding of the Office of Public Safety Accountability. Uh, my strong recommendation throughout is that we should uh, uh, take good stock of all these programs and procedures that have been in place and ask, uh, try to evaluate them and how responsive or their responsiveness to any number of the issues that have given uh, rise 
to their development or their creation. I think that will give us a better sense of what where the gaps may exist and what other new programs or initiatives that may be warranted. Um, so that that you know, so I would not rule out new initiatives certainly, uh, but I'm much more in favor strongly as a priority to really take good stock of the ones that have uh, that we have taken. Uh, you know, undertaken in the past few years and to see where they are in response to the issues uh, of uh, police accountability, um, um, racial justice, uh, and, and of course, uh, um, community, uh, you know, policing. Dr. Powell, I'd like to pose the question to you first. What accountability is there for police officers and how is it enforced? Well, I'll say that, uh, Dr. Ruazi did a great job of summarizing, you know, the uh, the comprehensive forms of accountability that exist uh, currently with respect to, you know, the internal affairs, the uh, the external review commissions. You know, I don't think I need to rehash uh, that very uh, thorough explanation. You know, in addition to the district attorney's office and the power of prosecution outside of both the uh, the local citizenry and the police force itself. I will say that. Um, there's an additional level of accountability that I think hasn't come up, which is uh, an individual officer's self-accountability, right? And that would be, you know, the accountability to a certain standard of care and service that uh, is applied by an officer to someone that they're engaging with, given upon, you know, given various circumstances. And a lot of them are, uh, as we, you know, well know, you know, linked and tied to demographics, right? To either issues of wealth, uh, to race, to, to geography. Uh, those factors, I think, do, you know, are a determining factor in, in really establishing the uh, self-accountability, I think, that officers apply in a given scenario or situation uh, based upon their perceptions of the people they're interacting with, uh, you know, whatever perceptions they may be bringing into that uh, relative to their past experiences or just perceptions of other people who look like them or, you know, who come from similar backgrounds. So I don't think we can discount the, uh, the fact that uh, there are instances where officers uh, show tremendous, you know, self-accountability and sometimes those things are uh, unfortunately directly linked to, you know, the identity factors of the people that they're engaging with. So um, in addition to the, uh, the, uh, the factors, I think that Dr. Ruazi brought up, I, you know, want to highlight that as well. So if it's cool with you, I'd like to pose uh, the same follow-up. Um, should we enact a new form of accountability for police officers? You know, again, I find myself, you know, very compelled by Dr. Ruazi's uh, you, you know, his statement, I think that that's a very fair and accurate comment, right, that uh, we do have current, you know, current measures in place. I think that um, it's not necessarily enacting new policies, it's really an assessment of how well some of these current accountability measures are working. And again, I would say that given various cir circumstances, you know, some of them ge geography, if you were to poll uh, residents in, in East Sacramento or you know, Folsom or, or other areas with, you know, a higher income base and more affluent people, they would probably say oh, the police are serving them quite well, right? Versus if you look at, you know, other communities that have uh, been historically marginalized, they would have a very different, a very different perception. So I think that, you know, we have various measures of accountability, some of them self, you know, that self-accountability that I've, you know, already shared, and then other measures which, uh, you know, stem around the local engagement of communities, 
uh, how well integrated they are with, with policymakers, um, how effective they are at lobbying for you know, specific services or outcomes from uh, the police department. You know, finding those things that work in the areas and the communities in which uh, they would rate, you know, police service and, and police accountability as extraordinarily high and replicating them uh, in communities where they don't share those same perspectives and viewpoints would be, uh, I think, one of the best and most effective steps towards actually uh, implementing change and improving uh, the quality of policing in some of these communities where they feel uh, they've been underrepresented or, or marginalized. So I'd like to move on to our next question. Um, Dr. Powell, I'm gonna let you go first on this one. But what level of education is appropriate for prospective law enforcement officials? This is a really interesting question, right? Because um, I think the uh, standard answer could be, you know, hey, all, all officers should have a bachelor's degree or they should undergo certain, uh, you know, kind of baseline standards and associate's degree, whether that, you know, be the most appropriate or not. But my response would actually probably be a little more nuanced. When I look at the level of education that's appropriate, I would think more so, you know, the quality of education and the, uh, the actual components that they're focused on within that given education rather than the length. And I think you can accomplish, uh, you know, quality policing and police education, you know, in a, in a very constrained time period but, but it would be something that would be continuous and ongoing. And I think that the quality of that education needs to center around areas uh, in certain communities where you know, we're focused more on, on quality of care, on community policing, on conflict de-escalation, um, rather than focusing so much on you know, some of the more militarized or you know, extreme versions of, uh, of law enforcement that some law enforcement agencies may practice in terms of you know, professional development and training and preparation. And I think that the uh, city of Sacramento Police Department has been doing a very good job of, you know, focusing on some of those additional efforts because um, really, you know, getting, getting keyed in and promoting uh, engagement in the communities in which officers serve and, you know, building cultural competency and, and, and having, you know, empowering officers with the skills to be uh, effective given the specific communities that they're policing in are really the types of quality education that uh, I think are most effective in really uh, impacting change. Thank you for your response, Dr. Powell. Dr. Yawazi, I'm gonna ask you the same question. What level of education is appropriate for prospective law enforcement officials? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I also um, share uh, Dr. Powell's uh, viewpoints in terms of the importance of education, not just education, but also quality education. I, I would uh, argue that also part of that quality, quality education will be linked to duration. Um, if we're really going to do it, do it well um, and, uh, and not cut corners, it's gonna take quite some time, um, especially the critical aspect of policing that requires a lot of time for gestation of knowledge and skill um, and before one can actually think about um, being let loose on the streets to go and do the work. Um, it would require some trial and error to some extent and some correction. Uh, and again, and as Dr. Powell also mentioned, um, I should be ongoing. Um, we, we, we shouldn't think that um, even after the 24 weeks of the training academy, as it would be in the SAC PD, uh, that you are gone. You, you know, you now got it, you know, there wouldn't be anything else. So it is important to uh, to have uh, quality education um, uh, as well as 
one that is timed and ripe uh, for the skills sets, as well as um, expectations and performance of the roles of police you know, in that regard. Uh, specifically, um, we know uh, um, the, from the history of policing and education in the United States uh, that education makes a positive difference. Um, if you look at the studies uh, done or the data with regard to all in the police department will show that those police officers with college education tend to have fewer citizen complaints than those without, right? Uh, and this is very consistent um, across the board. In that regard, uh, one would be looking at the data, make a very strong case for college education. And, and the likelihood also of that increasing in terms of the number of years of college education. In other words, um, a, a, a person with a two-year diploma is likely to do a better job in terms of managing citizen complaint, exercising police discretion fairly than somebody with a high school you know, diploma. And I don't want to be somewhat elitist you know, in that regard. Uh, both are definitely, before you go to college, you have to have high school, so both are important. I'm not saying kind of jump through that, you know, in a way. But um, in terms of uh, response to the moment we are in, and looking at the evolution of police hiring and, and selection and training and promotion in this country, we have come a long way. You know, it, it used to be that you didn't even have to have a high school diploma uh, to a point where... Um, it would be hard pressed to come across even a sheriff um, in any of the rural counties where you have anything less than a high school diploma, uh, right? You know, in that in that regard. Uh, and I remember um, when this case came up, I believe it was in Dallas PD, um, you know, case in 1982. Uh, here, this actually was tested before the U.S. Supreme Court um, uh, as to whether there is. Um, 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 a direct relationship between law enforcement and education. And, and the court basically said, yes, you know, education should be seen or could be interpreted as a bona fide qualification. Uh, so from that legal backing, you know, again, from what we know now, consistently, again, makes a very strong case that college education does make a difference in terms of uh, being a good police officer. It doesn't make you a perfect police officer, but it really means that you have a more solid foundation and grounding to be able to do your job as an officer, you know, more effectively. If I have time, I can also talk a little bit about the, the academy. I think Dr. Powell kind of alluded to that as well. SACPD, if I remember correctly, last time I checked, you know, the academy is 24 weeks now. Um, I remember when I was going out to the training grounds in West Sacramento, uh, the CHP training grounds where the SACPD, you know, does the academy. Um, in 1991, 92, 93, um, I believe that time was like 12 or 14 weeks, <laughs> all right? So it has uh, pretty much doubled. And is there recognition again of the complexity of uh, policing especially with regard to the changing demographics and, and, and the many uh, technological as well as um, environmental conditions that we find ourselves that oftentimes police have to grapple with. And so um, 
I'm also very mindful that when you talk about college education and at the same time talking about retaining a police department that reflects the community, how does this impact minorities, the people that we are trying to, you know, you know, make sure that they are involved despite all the challenges. Um, I'm very mindful of that. It only means that we need to do a better job. We need to work harder and maybe create more incentives um, so that um, the minorities um, um, uh, who may not be as represented or well represented in the educational sector are well uh, you know, supported and provided the necessary incentives um, uh, and um, we do the, the outreach to be able to get them. One thing I would also make somewhat ironic, generally, um, minority police officers uh, tend to have, on the average, a little bit of higher levels of education, number of years, than their white counterparts, including female police officers, uh, tend to have a little bit of higher levels of education compared to their male counterparts, right? Uh, you go figure why that is the case. Could it be that um, these are people who know fully well that the uh, occupation or the this particular system may not be as welcoming of uh, you know uh, people of uh, you know people of color or women, and so going into these positions, they try to go beyond the minimum, and education is one of those criteria. So again, you cannot go wrong by having more education for officers, both at the point of entry, as well as even after, during the academy and when they come out in terms of retraining. So looking next at trainings, I'm sure we've all had that type of training at work where it may, whether it be making sure that we understand the new computer system to don't forget to send the weekly email regarding someone who spilled coffee on the ground and you have to clean it up. And I'm sure they're very different trainings because the computer one, you might try to remember a little bit more, but remembering to send that weekly email about cleaning up coffee, that may slip your mind a little bit. But specifically, first, Dr. Wazi, what do you think is an appropriate level for, or appropriate time frame for trainings? And should they be short-term or long-term? Yeah, as I, as I said, I think um, it, it may vary from community to community and looking at, again, what the curriculum dictates um, or what the curriculum needs are. Uh, I, I think 24 weeks, uh, you know, to 30 weeks um, on the average for a mid to large size police department in terms of the community, um, I think is is you know is um, um, is adequate or satisfactory. Um, I, I know it's a lot of investment uh, to put police you know cadet through the training, and and there is no guarantee that all of them will make it, and and you still have to invest, and sometimes. Um, uh, it, it can be at, you know, at a very uh, you know high cost you know to some extent to be able to do that. Uh, so um, um, it, it, there could, definitely there could be some local variations, and I will I will uh, you know uh, you know accept that. The, the point I also want to make is in addition to the duration, um, the content of the curriculum or the quality again uh, becomes very very critical. Um, I am a proponent, a very strong proponent of um, police receiving more of their training in the academy and even afterwards in the areas of conflict resolution and communication than 
the use of force, right? Um, currently, um, on the, depending on where you are, on the average, um, let me even be conservative and say 80% of police training is about the use of force or the law and, and, and issues of, you know, legalese or legalism to some extent. Law enforcement, typical law enforcement, right? Um, um, uh, making arrests uh, and, and, you know, engaging in prosecution or commencing prosecution and so on and so forth. That's what the training is mostly about. About 80% of police training is around that. But when the police officer comes out on the street for eight to 10 hours or sometimes 12 hours on the shift, the police officer only uses, I would even say on the generous side, only maybe 20%, if at all, of that skill. Right? So they receive 80% of the training, but actually I apply that knowledge or skill only about 20% of the time. And I would even suggest 10% in some instances or some days or times. So you really don't have to be a rocket scientist that that needs to change. You know, I I I know that the issue of the law and and, and, and legality is important and the force because it only takes one mistake and somebody's life is on the line, right? I do understand that. But I question whether we are really using our training to fully and effectively prepare the police officers for what they do most of the time in terms of their, what we refer to as the, the role performance not necessarily the rule expectation. Yes, most police officers may expect before they go into the force that it's all about law enforcement, right? Uh, about uh, Dr. Powell's brother who is uh, kicking doors down and serving warrants and taking names, right? Uh, most police officers think that's what it's all about. But when they actually do the work, the actual work is more about talking, it's more about conflict management, it's more about um, you know, uh, persuasion, and it's more about problem solving. So I think the training should reflect more of that than what we currently have. So Dr. Powell, um, I'd like to throw this over to you now. I would definitely love to ask you, um, what is the appropriate time frame for trainings in your opinion, and should they be long-term or short-term? Thank you. So in response to the question, should they be long-term or short-term, I say yes, right? And I will echo a lot of what Dr. Wazi said with respect to uh, training that's very conditional and contextual, right? And I think that it, it, it's very difficult to overtrain someone for this type of work, right? Because the nature of, of policing is so complicated, right? I mean, I've, I've had a Dr. Wazi mentioned my brother, who's you know a law enforcement officer, and I speak to him about this all the time. And he tells me that um, the challenge in working in this field is that you're oftentimes interacting with people on the worst day of their life, right? And if you don't have the skills necessary, you know, to engage someone uh, in a positive way, 
you know, and, and try and find positive resolution and figure out a way to kind of de-escalate and remove tensions from these situations, then, you know, you find yourself in increasingly tense, potentially dangerous situations, right? And so I do think that um, we do a disservice in some ways uh, to our officers and to our communities by not equipping them and empowering them with these tools necessary on a continuous basis, right? And I think it's important to recognize and acknowledge that these things do change over time. So, I mean, when we're working in communities, community demographics shift, right? I mean, we look at, you know, South Sacramento, where I'm from, which 20 years ago looked very differently demographically than it does now. Now we have a larger immigrant population from Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And when you're engaging with these communities, there are different sets of cultural norms and expectations that officers really need to understand in order to be effective and, and very positive influences in these roles. And the fact that a, a lot of police departments don't invest significant amounts of time to Dr. Wazi's point into you know, some of these more quote unquote soft skills that are really critical that they use you know, up to 80% of the time in their day leaves the officers to really establish and develop these effective communication strategies and de-escalation strategies themselves. And you're going to have a sliding scale of, of effectiveness in that environment because some people are gonna naturally gravitate towards being able to you know, move between these different uh, situations and these different cultural groups and whatnot, and others aren't. And so to the extent that these things are not present, in our training academies, in our environments, we do our communities and our officers a disservice. Um, I should mention in my, you know, in my day job, I actually, uh, I work for the Los Rios Community College District, right? I'm, I'm the Associate Vice Chancellor of Instruction. So I do have the chance to engage with our administration of justice programs and with, the, uh, with, with, with SAC PD pretty frequently. And we had um, a, a very similar conversation with SAC PD about two years ago where uh, there was an expressed interest in helping to diversify uh, their police force. And the, the points Dr. Wazi brought up were, were points that were all discussed, right? The uh, tendency towards officers uh, who come from these more underrepresented communities to have, you know, more credentials because, you know, they feel right, rightly or wrongly that they need them in order to be competitive in these environments, right? Um, but there, there was also this acknowledgement and recognition that focusing on uh, the actual policing skills, you know, the, you know, some of the more technical skills of the job, you know, the legal aspects of it tend to overshadow uh, some of these more community-based, you know, communication-based strategies that are really, really effective. And I'll add that um, it's really interesting to me that, that, that generally speaking, uh, community, uh, policing as a profession uh, is a profession that doesn't have more uh, kind of recognized standards in this space and field, right? And, you know, I'm an urban planner, you know, so I, I interact professionally with a lot of architects and engineers. And in these professions, we have licenses, right? Things that you have to maintain. And the same thing for attorneys, right? I mean, they have continuing education credits that they need to take to maintain their bar certification. Uh, architects have to go through regular testing and academies that, you know, to make sure that they're staying current on, on best practices and embedded within all of the technical aspects of those jobs are also, you know, recognition or, or professional development that recognizes, uh, you know, the need for communication strategies, promoting equity and diversity, social justice based initiatives. And, you know, as a profession, uh, policing 
you know, I'm not sure if we can say, you know, consistently there's that same, you know, standard across the entire profession. There's no, you know, nationally certifying body that, you know, provides a license to become a law enforcement officer. And if I do a poor job in a particular agency, um, then what's to prohibit me, you know, from moving to another agency and, and taking the same job, sometimes in the exact same service area, right? And in those instances, I think because we do not have that same kind of oversight and level, ensuring quality, you know, quality policing and professional development is even more essential, right? Because now, because there is no external governing body that, that, that applies these standards, the departments need to really establish them themselves. And those standards really should be based upon the things that we keep coming back to, right? Which is just being an effective, uh, really leader and, and, and member in your community that is uh, helping people to, you know, stay within the bounds of the law and protecting uh, the greater society. So, Dr. Powell, I'm going to give you this last question before we do our open discussion, and then I'll give it to Dr. Wazi. But this summer, due to the murder of George Floyd and countless others, Governor Gavin Newsom put a requirement out for all college students in the CSU system that they must take an ethnic studies course before they graduate. Do you think that is appropriate for the governor to set forth this action? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think independent of, you know, the tragedy of, of, of George Floyd and, and the events that happened this summer uh, surrounding that, this is something, you know, critically important um, because I think that society in general is enriched by having uh, more opportunity to engage with uh, perspectives that are different from, you know, a given person and individual. And ethnic studies courses and programs are, are a phenomenal way to accomplish that. Uh, furthermore, I think the governor, you know, as a as a representative of the state of California, really, right? I mean, through through representing, you know, the CSU and in, impacting that, he's basically uh, representing society in general's really prioritization of you know more inclusivity, more uh, cross cultural experiences and interactions that are embedded and present in most ethnic studies courses. Um, I think that. You know, it's unfortunate at times that we have to legislate these things externally, right? These are things that, as a member of the higher education community, these are really things that, you know, I would hope we would collectively, uh, you know, value ourselves, right? And state explicitly as a system, as a CSU system, the UC system, the California Community College system, to say that these are things that we value and we're going to really, you know, embed them in our curriculum. And when those things don't happen, and we have tragedies like, George Floyd, it just really, I think, highlights the uh, the fact that we, as a higher education system, you know, may not necessarily be as aggressive or as assertive in, in really prioritizing uh, these issues of, you know, cross-cultural collaboration, learning, um, you know, equity-based work in our curriculum as much as we need to. So I, I will say that it is something that I support. Um, even though it is legislated and, and faculty and administrators tend to hate being legislated, right? Because we're very independent thinkers. Um, I will say that it is a step in the, uh, in the right direction in this case. Dr. Wazi, do you think that's appropriate for the governor to set forth this action? Yeah, yes, and for the reasons uh, Dr. Powell mentioned, I, I would uh, add a couple of other comments or points. One is to acknowledge the fact that this particular uh, legislation or mandate uh, actually precedes at least the movement for it, the impetus for it, or the motivation for it, 
actually preceded the George Floyd moment. Definitely George Floyd moment provided a kind of ripe, was a ripe moment uh, for really what has been gaining momentum for uh, quite some time. And, and I would acknowledge uh, the very persistent and um, a strong advocacy and leadership of uh, the California Faculty Association of which I'm a member. Uh, quite a good number of uh, colleagues, uh, especially those in the various ethnic studies, uh, you know, departments in the CSU system uh, and to some extent UC system, but definitely the CSU system, um, you know, took it on and, 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 um, and um, brought the legislation, you know, to bear. Uh, the second point also I would like to make is, is in, in a way, it's not that strange, right? It's, it's not totally new because you have ethnic studies, uh, you know, departments um, in different parts of the CSU and UC systems. Their the, the levels of functionality and funding or sustainability may vary. I think the legislation provides uh, probably some more backbone for these programs to be seen as part and parcel of the integral academic life and, and mission of the university, not as an add-on uh, that uh, can be cut when um, budget uh, you know, problems arise. Uh, but also you will find that um, the aspect of it with regard to criminal justice uh, you know, programs, uh, including my own department or division of criminal justice, um, we do have uh, courses um, um, uh, that mimic or reflect the um, intention or the principles of the ethnic studies. You know, we have our, quite a good number of our criminal justice courses that are in the general education realm. We have a course on minorities and criminal justice. We have a course on restorative justice, and I have been able to teach those courses and or design those courses and um, you know, successfully over the years uh, uh, in our Sac State. We have uh, courses on violence and terrorism. We have courses on women and the criminal justice system and so on and so forth. And more importantly, equally important, we do have uh, quite a fair amount of our elective courses uh, from the Department of Ethnic Studies, Women's Studies and, and other uh, social justice, uh, like sociology and psychology kinds of programs, uh, or even social work on the campus. So, so it's not totally strange, so to say. There is definitely some basis for it. Uh, I think what the governor did was kind of um, giving um, an, another, um, uh, you know, feather, you know, so to say, and um, and support for what really has been, uh, you know, um, getting momentum and has been around for some time but nonetheless has faced some threats to it or to their existence. Thank you, Dr. Gwazi. So we have finished our debate portion, so we're going to have our open discussion portion. So I would like to invite both of our guests to unmute themselves, and I'd like to just go through a couple of things I took some notes on. Sure. First thing I'd like to talk about to the second question, and this was interesting because you both agreed, but you had different points of agreement is what I noticed with uh, Dr. Powell. And for those of you that don't remember, our second question was what level of education is appropriate for law enforcement? Uh, Dr. Powell, you talked more about um, community policing. You talked more about like trainings and programs coming in with the academy. Whereas Dr. Wazi, you talked more about um, like higher education or 
two-year degree. Um, so just out of curiosity, and I'll ask this question first, um, why not a bachelor's degree? Yeah, I, I think I, that's what I said. You know, um, I, I think eventually we may get there, uh, it, you know, um, uh, but one has to be very realistic <laughs> in terms of if we are saying we want a police department that reflects the people or the community, you need to know where the community is. So, you know, definitely leadership means that you're a little bit ahead, you know, to some extent, but not too far ahead that you leave the people behind, you know, to some extent. Uh, if you look at the trajectory um, in terms of where we started, uh, even before the 1982 Supreme Court ruling in terms of education being a bona fide requirement or occupational requirement, um, um, and where we are currently, you will see a, a trajectory and uh, the up one trend. So we're not talking about that time. I think it was either 30 years or even 45, 40, either 30 units or 45 units of uh, college education in the Dallas uh, Police Department at that time. Um, 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 but we now we, we're talking about 60 plus units, <laughs> you know, um, and definitely college, uh, you know, bachelor's degree. You do have police officers with, uh, you know, master's degrees and PhDs. I mean, I know of two or three um, SAC PD officers with uh, doctorate degrees or doctorate degrees, right? Um, um, quite a good number of them with law degrees or JDs, right? You know, in, you know, you know, in a, in a, in a way. So the trajectory is actually moving in that, you know, upward in terms of bachelor's degree or even higher. And, and to a large extent, um, every police officer would see that as a career, or at least those who see it as a career would look forward to the promotion. Um, uh, and promotion oftentimes means getting more education, formal education, uh, whether it's a master's degree or a law degree or some other type of a certificate level type of a program, you know, in that in that, in, that, in that regard. So this is what I tell my 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 students um, at, at Sac State, uh, and I also share that with. I have two, you know, teenagers, uh, a daughter who's a freshman, my son who's in high school. I would not be surprised that in say twenty years time, um, bachelor's degree may be. Um, at the same level as high school diploma. In 20, 30 years, I can see that happen. And especially with even this COVID-19 environment that has challenged us in many ways than we probably never even imagined to some extent. And it's another call for more creativity, a higher level of intellectualism, and uh, or intelligence, um, whether we divert that toward artificial intelligence or to human intelligence, either will still require a fair amount of um, of education and or higher and higher levels of education. So that's my thought. That's why. <laughs> no, I, I very much appreciate it, Dr. Powell. Um, you talked more a little bit, or you talked more about like community involvement um, and the training before, um, like, or more like the training at the academies. Um, do you want to speak on that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, just one one other point I'll add to Dr. Wazi's answer, which I think was very comprehensive. Um, just, you know, thinking about the bachelor's degree question, um, re really very much a practical thing, right? And, and it sounds ironic for someone who works in the community college system, but I am, you know, generally speaking, uh, concerned about the trend that I do see uh, professionally 
of you know credential inflation, right? Especially for entry level positions in general, because uh, having you know not having a bachelor's degree does not necessarily you know make you um, you know it doesn't mean that you you can't be a good police officer, right? I mean you can come with a lot of other skills, and then you pair them uh, with continuing professional development you know, a lifetime, essentially a professional development. And as Dr. Wazi mentioned, you know, when you look to promote up beyond, you know, patrol or uh, walking a beat, then, you know, you go back and you receive more formal education to make yourself uh, competitive for those ranks. But I do think that uh, it is a good way for people who are uh, community minded and who may not necessarily see themselves in the time being, in the present moment as being uh, college students or college worthy to get into a a career and field that if they demonstrate other uh, forms of competency and, and connectivity that they can uh, be successful in and then maybe boomerang back, you know, into, into school at a later date and, and receive either their associates, bachelor's, master's, or even doctorate degree or JD, right? Um, so I think that as a profession, um, winnowing and restricting people uh, exclusively to that level of education is something that I would uh, maybe just think twice about because there are a lot of good uh, officers that you, uh, you could be leaving out. Um, you know, what I mean in terms of community engagement is just, um, you know, the point that was brought up earlier about uh, focusing again just on, you know, what it takes to be an effective communicator, given the dynamics of the communities in which you're serving. And I think the most effective, um, you know, I have a good friend who's, uh, whose father was, uh, you know, one of the first black cops in Sacramento. And when they put him on patrol, he patrolled Del Paso Heights, right? And Del Paso Heights happened to be the community that he was born and raised in, right? And because he came from the community and understood, you know, those dynamics and he had actual relationships with people who lived in the community going back to when he's, you know, in preschool or elementary school, he was one of the most effective police officers in that, in that service area. And, you know, we're not gonna hire cops exclusively from neighborhoods, but we can, uh, be sure that when we're training and preparing them to patrol in certain neighborhoods that we're equipping them with the skills to develop, you know, those functional relationships with the community because uh, the best cops, the best police officers are the ones, you know, that know what's going on in their area that have established really good working relationships with community leaders, with uh, the faith-based community, you know, with local business owners, with the PTA groups, you know, the uh, all of the school districts, the, the, the principals, they know they know the people and who's who, right? And when things happen, you know, they can plug in to a network, you know, of individuals within that community that, that, that really are gonna help them be more effective to resolve whatever issue pops up. That's not something that happens organically, right? And if I'm, you know, if I'm a white cop coming from El Dorado Hills, right? Who's patrolling down in, you know, in, in Fruit Ridge or 47th, and I've never really interacted or engaged with some of these community-based members, you know, I don't know the nuances and differences between, you know, an AME church versus, you know, a Baptist church and maybe how they worship differently, you know, all these types of things, which may not seem that connected, you know, on the surface. But when you get down to really effective policing and community engagement and relationship building, these are the types of things that if we equip our officers with skills to be uh, more culturally competent and relevant in those situations, then I think they become more effective in those communities. So I do want to bring up something that you both said that I really enjoy, not only just because of like how intelligent it was, but also just because I'm a communications major. We study how important communication truly is. And I love that you both brought up how important communication is and how it should be 
included more when it comes to those trainings. So I would like to ask a little bit, like, as Dr. Wazi gave a rough estimate, if I'm correct, Dr. Wazi, that 80% of the police academy training is about use of force and law. Uh, does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. What would be an appropriate percentage, do you think? Like, should, would there be a notable decrease or like what would be an appropriate percentage for, let's say, communication and compared to um, like use of force and the law itself? Uh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a good point. I, definitely, I want it to be to be more than what it is currently. <laughs> um, and I, and again, I will I will admit that progress has been made. And again, when I joined our faculty, and again was going out to the CHP Academy um, in early mid nineties, um, the curriculum I think would be anywhere from maybe four to 10 hours on community relations and communication and so on and so forth. Um, it's definitely much, 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 much more than that now, you know, you know currently. I, th- I think a, at least aiming for a 50-50 split of balance, I think would be desirable and I think will still do justice and, uh, you know, to policing, you know, to some extent. Um, if you don't mind going back to the topic about uh, uh, the topic of, of education, um, again, I, I, I don't want to sound elitist, uh, but, but really kind of from my analysis of where things are, where we are, where we have come from, um, a clear indicator is, you know, points us in the right direction in terms of education. And again, I don't want to suggest that it's a panacea or that you don't even need to have the emotional intelligence, you know, so to say. And when we talk about higher education, I mean really good quality higher education that take into cognizance all the points Dr. Powell, you know, mentioned and and more, um, you know, to some extent. Um, I also want to suggest that when we talk about community policing, we need to look at it from the vantage point of the partnership between the police department and the community. And what it really suggests clearly, going back to the foundation of the American or modern policing, um, Robert Peel, um, uh, who really is the father of modern policing. He talked about the police being the community and the community being the police. The only difference is that the police officers are paid full time to do the job that is incumbent upon every citizen. So you have a police department, you could also have some level of policing within the neighborhood, within the community, whatever you wanna call that, uh, uh, that sometimes may even be more effective and you only rely on or call the police department or the formal police officer, the highly educated police officers in those instances where you really, truly, truly need them, not just an extent, so. All right, I would. I have one last question. It's for Dr. Powell. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the ethnic studies mandate that Governor Newsom put out. But 
I'm, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you've had students before who have taken classes that they may not necessarily want to take or they're not as interested in. But with this new mandate coming out, what, what would you say to encourage students about this type of class? And like, what would you do to encourage them to either get them interested or make them feel as if this was like, not just a GE requirement, but something like you should be taking just for like you to know? Well, that, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it's, it's actually one that, you know, we've, we've kicked around a little bit um, in the community college as we've, uh, you know, kind of moved to, to incorporate this into our GE offerings uh, as a system, right? And I would say to anyone, you know, looking at these, whether you be a student or a parent questioning why, you know, now my student has to take this one extra class and it has to be ethnic studies and what is that? Why do I have to take it? You know, these are probably some of the most transformative classes that are available um, in the higher education system in the sense that, you know, you're, you're, they, they study phenomenon, phenomena that are like impact everyone, right? And I think that, you know, issues of identity that are covered in ethnic studies courses permeate every human interaction that we have, whether you acknowledge it or not, right? And someone, I often get the question, well, well, you know, is that, is this an issue of race or, or class or whatnot? And I say, well, of course it is, you know, everything is. It's just, you know, the real question is what degree in this given particular situation are those things impacting? Like what's, how large of an influence do they have on this particular interaction or this outcome? And so I would say that, um, to, to, to students questioning this or, or asking why they have to take it, this is one class where I guarantee that if you take it, you will come out a different person. You know, if you, if you, if you truly study the curriculum, if you engage, you know, with your students and with your faculty, with your classmates and faculty, um, you will come out, you know, a different person and a better person because you will have learned something, you know, about, you know, the human condition in, in this country or internationally that you did not know before you walked in. And it's going to make you not just a better student, a better employee, um, better whatever it is that you wanna do when you're beyond school, but just a better human being. Thank you very much, Dr. Powell. We have reached the end of our time today here at the Common Ground Podcast. I'd like to personally thank Dr. Ernest Duwazi and Dr. Torrance Powell for coming on here. We very much enjoyed hearing your opinions and your beliefs and getting to learn some new news about perspective. I want to also thank KSSU for helping us and the staff that helps edit and create these episodes. And as a reminder, people are going to have different perspectives and opinions. Whether you believe them or not is your choice. What you need to continue to understand is that we need to respect each other's opinions regardless of if we believe them. So from the Common Ground Podcast, I'd like to thank everyone that was involved. I'd like to thank our two guests, and I hope you all have a wonderful day.